With offices in London, New York, Jerusalem, and Pycock OT, this is Shine Network News for the weekend in Sunday, May 29th, 2005. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Tom Payne, not my real name. Coming up, we'll be talking to Canadian blogger Damien Penny about the recent scandals in Ottawa and why he feels the Liberal Party is undermining the principles of Westminster democracy. It's something that I've been watching with sort of a mixture of astonishment and sheer despair because a lot of it is the sort of thing that you'd associate with Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe more than here in Canada. And Dave, the Israeli behind the blog Israeli Cool, talks about Israel advocacy in the teeth of the prevailing stupidity. And you have to look at what Zionism is, which is the genuine aspirations of a people, the Jewish people, to have a homeland. And to negate those aspirations at the expense of the so-called Palestinian people to me, is anti-Semitism. So, those interviews, which will take us to Newfoundland and Israel, respectively, are coming up soon. But first, blog news. The French vote on the European Constitution, which was being held as this podcast was being put together, appeared to be headed for defeat, according to the final polls. Now, some of you may be listening to this in the United States, where you have a constitution which has lasted more than 200 years, and which, at a mere 4,500 words, can fit on a single large broadsheet, and that's including John Hancock's massive signature. The proposed European Constitution is a massive tome which comes in at 140 pages and is capable of deflecting small arms fire, which, given Europe's history, may prove to be about the most useful thing you can do with it. I have to give you a taste of the European Constitution. You just can't believe it until you actually try to read it. It's the most god-awful bureaucratese. Try this on for size. Under the principle of subsidiarity in areas which do not fall within its exclusive competence, the Union shall act only if and in so far as the objectives of the proposed action cannot be sufficiently achieved by the member states, either at central level or at regional and local level, but can rather, by reason of the scale or effects of the proposed action, be better achieved at Union level. The institutions of the Union shall apply the principle of subsidiarity as laid down in the protocol on the application of the principles of subsidiarity subsidiarity and proportionality. National parliaments shall ensure compliance with that principle in accordance with the procedure set out in the protocol. It's not quite we the people, is it? All you really need to know about the EU constitution can be found in Clause 5A. This constitution shall have primacy over the laws of the member states. I don't think so, Tim. Of course, in a very real sense, it probably doesn't matter if the French or the Dutch people vote to reject the European Constitution. This actually isn't about what the people want, it's about what the European ruling political class want. Listen to what the current European president, the all-powerful leader of mighty Luxembourg, says will happen if the voters have the temerity to cast their ballots incorrectly. If the French and the Dutch reject the EU constitution on Sunday and Wednesday, they should rerun the referendums, the current president of the EU, Jean-Claude Juncker, has said. If at the end of the ratification process we do not manage to solve the problems, the countries that would have said no would have to ask themselves the question again, Mr Juncker said in an interview with the Belgian daily Le Soir. Yes, fear the unstoppable juggernaut that is Luxembourg fondly remembered by many for a cameo role in World War II as a speed bump for the German army in May 1940. There are plenty of great blogs and websites discussing this issue. Um, Summy's data is good for a libertarian free market perspective. David Carr summed it up on Summy's data when he said, the whole bloody continent is headed for another war, Britain out now. 
Incidentally, I ran across a great Voltaire quote at the Democracy in Europe site. So long as the people do not care to exercise their freedom, those who wish to tyrannise will do so, for tyrants are active and ardent, and will devote themselves in the name of any number of gods, religious and otherwise, to put shackles upon sleeping men. Well, Voltaire may have been an obnoxious Jew-hater, but he did get quite a few things right. Rumours are still coming in that Saudi Arabia's King Fahd is dead. Actually, he's never really been in charge of the world's only family business with a flag in a seat at the UN, and it may be just that the smell's getting so rank that they've finally decided to officially notice the fact that he hasn't been breathing for quite a while. As was the case with Yasser Arafat, the late and unlamented Palestinian leader, the Saudi king's state is a state secret, with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle well in play. Is he dead? Is he alive? Until we hear officially, he might be either. He's hovering between life and death in a state of quantum uncertainty. He's in a box with Schrodinger's cat. The Command Post, an excellent compendium blog that I recommend you bookmark and go back to often, has a report from the Saudi Institute saying Fahd's death will impact the succession of the would-be king, Crown Prince Abdullah, who's only a half-brother to the Sudairi Seven. The Sudairis share one mother and form the most powerful alliance in the ruling tribe of Al Saud, according to the Saudi Institute. And here's a quote, Abdullah will find it impossible to wrestle the throne away from the Sudairis, who want to maintain power in their branch. The struggle between the Sudairis and Abdullah, if any, would pose a greater threat to the regime than the violent groups who have been engaged in, at times, fierce clashes with the government forces. Well, we can only live in hope. In war-related news, and here I'm talking about World War II, not the current unpleasantness, another couple of Japanese bitter-enders may have been discovered hiding out in the Philippines. We were still having to persuade some of these guys the war was over back in the 1970s, and it looks like that process may not be quite over. Ace of Spades, an excellent blog, it makes a rather telling point. Liberals whining about a quick end to this war, featuring guys even more fanatical than Japanese suicide torpedo pilots, ought to bear in mind that some people just will not give up. Ever. Sorry if that interferes with your plans to write nothing but columns about will and grace for the rest of your diminishing career, Maureen Dowd. And speaking of Modo, Australia's own version, Margot Kingston, may be having <laughs> employer-related problems. Aussie mega-blogger Tim Blair reports her web diary, paid for by the Sydney Morning Herald, appears to be making preparations for fleeing the Fairfax Media Hegemonic Imperialist Drone Factory. This may or may not have occurred in connection with negative comments about her bosses, which were mysteriously disappeared from her site. Perhaps they were taken to Gitmo Margot, or maybe it was the Zionists you claim control the media and financial world. Yep, maybe those words of yours were stolen, along with that Russian lake that mysteriously vanished and which the locals blame the CIA for. We Zionists are capable of many things, you know, Margot. Perhaps I've said enough already, though. Australian left-wing blogger Neil Cook has dipped his toe in the audio blogging world. Ten points for trying something new, but minus several hundred for the flat, monotone delivery of 19th century era class warfare propaganda about government supporters listening to the recent Australian budget and then going off to eat caviar and drink champagne. Yes, Neil Cook's got our number all right. Next year, the budget's finally going to tackle causes much closer to our bloated, plutocratic hearts, 
top hat availability, the appalling cost of spats, and replacing the country's high-tech flexible plastic currency with paper. Did you know you can't light a cigar with a $100 bill anymore? It just drips burning gobs of goo onto the Axminster. It takes hours for my Filipina house girl to clean it the next day. You're listening to Shire Network News, the official podcast of SilentRunning.tv, the podcast that looks at the world through the eyes of Locked, which explains a lot, really. Now let's head up north to the frozen socialist wonderland that is Canada. Most of us, I'm guessing, get a lot of our information about Canadian politics from South Park. If asked who the Canadian Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition were, many of us might respond by tentatively saying, Terence and Philip? Well, it is true that recent Canadian political developments tend to involve some variation on Paul Martin getting Stephen Harper to pull his finger, but that's as far as it goes. There are now some quite big and serious scandals, constitutional jiggery-pokery and alarm and despondency over the state of democracy in what's left of Her Majesty's North American possessions. Canadians of whatever political stripe would agree that the one thing they really can't stand is to be sniggered at by Americans. So we won't do that here on Shire Network News. We've got a Canadian to do it. I spoke to Newfoundland-based blogger Damien Penny, who's run his blog Damien Nation seemingly since the internet was invented, by Al Gore of course, and I asked him to background the recent political developments. The Liberals, unfortunately, seem to be kind of the default position for most Canadians because there's a lot of mistrust about the Conservative Party. Uh, Like I wrote on my site earlier today, it's like people think that the Conservatives, if they get elected, are going to turn Canada into something out of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, where women are nothing but baby makers and things like that. So what's been happening recently is that it's come out that during a, uh, during, uh, in a sponsorship program that the Liberals put on, in, mostly in Quebec, through most of the 1990s, and that was a program quite literally meant to have the government of Canada sponsoring a lot of cultural events and sports events, that sort of thing, literally just getting the Canada flag out there and getting the government of Canada symbol out there to show that Quebecers you know, are valued members of Confederation and that they shouldn't separate. Anyway, it has since turned out that much of the money that was being used for the sponsorship program was actually siphoned off to a lot of liberal-friendly advertising agencies, and moreover, that a lot of that money was actually paid back to the Liberal Party uh, in kickbacks. Uh, I think, unfortunately, Canadians are starting to get a little bit numb to it, and that's the big fear that I have. I think the longer that this inquiry goes on, Uh, Without an election, I think the more Canadians are going to get very numb to it and instead are going to start looking at what a lot of people think is more important, which is that, uh, you know, whether Stephen Harper, the conservative leader, is going to lock all the gays in concentration camps or something, which seems to be what a lot of people actually believe up here. What's been happening in Parliament? You asked about the House of Commons earlier. Uh, It's something that I've been watching with sort of a mixture of astonishment and sheer despair, because a lot of it is the sort of thing that you'd associate with Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe more than here in Canada. Uh, First of all, there was a vote in the House of Commons just a few weeks ago, and we have a parliamentary system here, which I take it is quite similar to what you have in New Zealand. Theoretically. Anyway, there uh, there was a confidence vote not too long ago. What happened was that the Conservatives sponsored an amendment to a procedural bill to state that the House of Commons no longer had confidence in the government. 
and that bill passed. Uh, literally, it was a situation where the House of Commons clearly voted, or a majority of the House of Commons clearly voted to say that they no longer had confidence in the Liberal government. Well, that usually um, means in the Westminster system the government falls. That's what it should mean. And in a situation like this, there is some pretty good constitutional authority that what should have happened should have been that the Liberals either should have dissolved the House and called an election right away, or they should have uh, called a more explicit confidence vote immediately after and instead, what they said is literally that, well, this is just a procedural thing. Uh, we don't think that uh, we have to call a confidence vote right now. But instead, we're going to, you know, we're going to have the vote on the budget in another week or so. And at that time, that's going to be an explicit vote of confidence in the House. But that gave them an extra week to, to scrape up some extra support, which enabled them to cling to power. That is exactly what they did. In 2004, there was a leadership battle for the new merged Conservative Party. And the leading candidates were Stephen Harper, who ended up winning, and a woman named Belinda Stronach. Uh, she's the daughter of a well-known Canadian businessman named Frank Stronach. Uh, she was the other candidate, and she got a lot of media attention as kind of a fresh face. And uh, I think, you know, at the risk of sounding sexist, a lot of it was largely because of her looks. Uh, she did not win the leadership, but she came a you know, very creditable second she was always considered a somewhat more moderate member of the Conservative Party. And what happened, almost completely out of the blue, is that last week, uh, before the budget vote was held, she switched sides. She crossed the floor and joined the Liberal Party, not only joining the Liberal Party, but also becoming the new minister of, I believe it's human resources. Damien, is this just the normal Westminster-style toing and froing of party politics, or is there something more important at the heart of all this? Uh, what I think is that we're seeing a serious disrespect for the way the system is supposed to work. And uh, I know it's somebody, I'm not sure if it was either Mark Stein or Andrew Coyne, it was one of them, or perhaps both of them, who noted that the whole Westminster system only works if everybody involved actually respects the conventions and the laws that govern it. And what I'm seeing from the liberals is a rather serious uh, example of disrespect. And what's absolutely disheartening to watch, especially here in eastern Canada, uh, where I'm calling from, Newfoundland, is that people have absolutely bought into Belinda Stronach's and Paul Martin's line 100%. Uh, Belinda Stronach's line was that she left the Conservative Party because she felt that it was too extreme. And she had no place in there for someone who was... Uh, in favor of same-sex marriage and perhaps more open to things like bilingualism and official multiculturalism, things like that. She felt she'd be more at home in the Liberal Party. And what's happening down here is that not only are people bought, largely bought that line completely and saying that this proves that the conservatives are too extreme, but because of a few rather intemperate comments that have been made about Belinda Stronach after they left, uh, they're saying that uh, people are being sexist in talking about her. And that, once again, this is even more proof that the Conservatives are too extreme. I may feel a bit uh, strange saying this being from New Zealand, but why is Canada like this? Well, I think a lot of it is simply a belief in our own virtue. Generally, here in Canada, and I mean, I say this as, you know, I mean, I love Canada. It is my home. And, you know, I think, uh, despite all our faults, I think this is the best country in the world. But uh, the political culture up here is dominated by being different from the Americans. That's basically what it's all about. We like to think that we're more virtuous. We like to think that we're more caring. And above all, we like to think that we're different. And because of that, uh, because of policies that the liberals have espoused over the years, including official multiculturalism and a government-run health care system, 
I think that Canadians are absolutely terrified that if a more right-wing government gets in place, that we're going to uh, become rather like the hell that we see down south. And I'm not saying that's what I think. I'm saying that's what, I, unfortunately, much of the Canadian electorate believes. Uh, moreover, here in Canada, we do have a media culture uh, in this country, which is dominated from Toronto. And there is a very strong limousine liberal streak in that town, which you see in most of the media. I think the exceptions there would probably be the National Post and the Toronto Sun. But if you watch the CBC or read the Toronto Star, you definitely get it. Uh, perhaps the low point came last week when the Toronto Star uh, ran an editorial uh, savaging the Conservatives for, because of all their procedural things, trying to uh, you know, force an election, forcing Paul Merton to go around the country trying to buy votes. How dare they? The Prime Minister of Canada actually asking for people to vote for him? That's shocking. I'm appalled. Uh, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. Have blogs been able to make a contribution to this in Canada? Are they as influential in Canada as they are down south? I don't think they're as influential up here yet, although when the... Gomery revelate when the uh, major revelations about liberal corruption first arose from the Gomery inquiry, there was a publication ban that was in place at the time, and a blog in the U.S. called Captain's Quarters, uh, because it was in the United States, the uh, guy who ran that, uh, Ed Morrissey, had a reliable source in Ottawa uh, who was giving him information about uh, what was coming out of the Gomery inquiry, and he published a lot of that. And it was one of these things where the Canadian media would not dare mention the name of this blog. And even a lot of we bloggers here in Canada could not mention his name, although a lot of bloggers did defy the ban. And because of that, even though that was an American blog, it did lead to a lot of interest in weblogs here in Canada. And I know that the traffic on my own site increased fivefold, literally overnight. But it's quite telling that it was uh, an American blog that ended up breaking uh, this Canadian story. That was Damien Penny, whose blog can be found at www.damienpenny.com. You're listening to Shire Network News, the official podcast of SilentRunning.tv. I'm Tom Payne. Is Really Cool is a very good blog focusing, naturally enough, on Israel. Recently it hosted the Jewish Blogger Awards, which Silent Running entered in three categories and didn't actually win anything. Not that we're bitter about it or anything. It's written by a man who prefers to be known only as David. He's an Australian who now lives in Israel, in Beit Shemesh in particular. Why? Well, it seems there was this girl. Well, there's always a girl, isn't there? Tell me the old, old story. He's also a Zionist, and that's an important part of who he is. I asked him how he first started is really cool. To be perfectly honest, it was an accident. No, really. I, I would like to say that I started with grand visions of advocacy and, you know, uh, altruistic motives, but... In essence, I think I just stumbled across the concept of what a blog was um, actually in the main news, uh, the, the main news media. I think I just read a story about a blogger and I thought, blog, that's an interesting word. And I think I typed it into Google and then I somehow came across blogger. And then I thought, oh, wow, it's like a diary. And this is going back to March 2003. And at the time, my, my wife was uh, about to give birth to our second child. So the initial posts to my blog were basically, you know, the the anticipation waiting for this child and so it was very personal in nature it's now really a, an israel advocacy blog how did it um, yeah. morph into that yeah well basically it, it morphed into it once i saw the power of the blog the way that i saw the power of the blog was when i got my first link and my first link was around the time of the first attempt on uh the terrorist uh Rantizi, hamas terrorist Rantizi. You might recall a few years ago we tried to take him out and we unfortunately missed that time. 
Now, at the time, I was very uh, you know, concerned about this, and I just felt the need to write. And I remembered that I had this blog that I started around the time that my wife was uh, about to give birth to her second child, which I'd left for a few months afterwards. So I wrote something on that. And then an Australian blogger actually linked to me. Wow, an Australian all the way across the world. And I thought, wait a minute, he, he read this. There's some real potential here. And I haven't really looked back since then. What's it morphed into now? Is really cool is um, is a site that gets quite a few hits now, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm, I mean I'm averaging close to I guess a thousand uniques a, a day. Um, first of all, it's not really the the amount of hits I'm worried about. I don't want to fall into the trap of preaching to the choir, and I suspect that a lot of my readers are the choir. Um, you know, I would give that all up to be able to get some people who are sitting on the fence and able to win over their hearts and minds. But basically, what I think it's morphed into, I've got a, a real approach to this, um, a unique approach, and you know, because you already have uh, the blogs like little green footballs which are filling a very nice uh, role and I don't want to compete with that um, there's no need for that so I think I utilize my sort of Australian culture my dubious Australian humor as it will and I try and use that to get across my advocacy so it's very focused on humor looking at the absurdity of the anti-Israel positions it's not just Israel focused but um, you know some might even say it's a bit sophomoric in nature um, but it seems to be quite successful why is Israel advocacy so important in the blogs you, you, you find it uh, all over the blogosphere that uh, people are uh, supporting Israel is it because they don't seem to be able to get the same kind of information across in the mainstream media in the West yeah absolutely I mean there is no doubt in my mind that the mainstream media are biased against Israel it's as simple as that and also even if they're not uh, you know, deliberately biased, but I think they are in most cases. If you just look at the images which are being um, portrayed in the media, you know, the pictures, they speak a thousand words and the pictures don't look good for Israel a lot of the, a lot of times. You know, you see a kid, uh, you know, against the Israeli soldier or you see a kid, a Palestinian kid on a stretcher and that looks bad for Israel because the mainstream media is showing that, but they're not showing where the kid was five minutes earlier where he was hobnobbing with a Hamas terrorist. The Hamas terrorist was using the kid as a shield or, you know, uh, mixing in with the kids. So, you know, this is, um, you know, the big problem with the mainstream media. Now, I think blogs like my own are preoccupied with Israel advocacy because the blogosphere is aiming at a different sort of audience. You find that the typical blog reader is someone who is disenchanted with the mainstream media, but also is someone that is looking for more information, is more involved in deep thought, in analysis, and I think Israel advocacy is a good fit for this type of reader. Are you having an impact, though? Is anything that you've done on your blog, um, has it really made a difference in the world? Um, <laughs> I would like to say the McShwama commercial that was linked to by Instapundit has made a huge difference to the world, but I, I would be lying. Um, look, I don't know if... Uh, I, I don't look at it in terms of uh, is it making a, a, an influence in the world as a whole. I think that would be very ambitious. But it's sort of like uh, water on a, on a rock, you know, just chipping away, you know, over, over time and, you know, sort of making inroads in that way. And I can point to one particular example that I'm proud of, which is a Native American Indian woman that, uh, you know, came across my blog a while ago. And, you know, she didn't have any informed opinion about Israel at all. I wouldn't say she was anti-Israel, but she didn't know anything at all. Now, as a result of reading my blog, and this is what she's actually told me, she has become one of the staunchest advocates of Israel I've ever seen and is able to make the parallels between her people and the Jewish or Israeli people and to be able to have made such an influence in someone's life 
you know, it, it gives me a lot of hope that if I can just sort of, uh, you know, influence the hearts and minds of people one by one like that, then I've achieved a great goal. Speaking from a sort of personal perspective, as a, an Australian Jew who's living in Israel now, do you buy the idea that what we're going through at the moment is a rerun of the 1930s with the rise of fascism? In this case, instead of a brown fascism, it's a green fascism, and a lot of intellectuals in the West simply being unable to comprehend the threat or thinking that, you know, we're doomed, and once again, Jews are the scapegoat. Are we living through the 30s again? Look, I think there are definitely uh, similarities. And I think that there is um, no doubt that much of the criticism of Israel, as you would, or anti-Zionism, is a manifestation of anti-Semitism. So in that way, we are seeing a parallel with the 1930s. The, our ideological opponents are always saying that we you know, shout out anti-Semites every time there's a criticism of Israel, but that, that is not the case. I mean, that's just an obfuscation of the facts. What you have to look at are the criticisms of Israel against criticisms of regimes around the world who are committing human rights, real human rights abuses, rather than acts in self-defense. Um, and you have to look at what Zionism is, which is the a genuine aspirations of a people, the Jewish people, to have a homeland and to negate those aspirations at the expense of the so-called Palestinian people, to me, is anti-Semitism. Other than that, I think a lot of what we're seeing now in terms of the opposition to Israel and the opposition to the American, uh, you, you know, to the US and the war against Iraq, a lot of it, I, I've got to be honest, I think it's stupidity and uh, ignorance which is driving this. That was David from Is Really Cool, which you can read at www.israelicool.com slash blog. He's a good guy and just as frustrated as many of us are by the official Israeli government attempts to give their side of the story. I realise the media are biased, but will someone please explain to me why, instead of having one of those incredibly attractive Israeli women front for the cameras, we're instead treated to the spectacle of Ranan Gissin speaking in a harsh and aggressive manner like this in such a way that you can actually feel potential support for Israel training away each second he's glaring at the camera like a cornered stoat. Am I the only one who feels Ranan Gissin is completely the wrong person to do that job? It's not as if Israel doesn't have a brilliant case. It does, but presenting it in such an abrasive, surly and defensive manner just doesn't do it justice. I well remember a fantastically effective video I saw when I was in Israel showing the flight time of a missile across the country. It was simply nose camera footage shot from an Israeli fighter jet which started over the Dead Sea and flew over Jerusalem, down the hill country and then over the coast south of Tel Aviv. It took less than 90 seconds and as a very graphic portrayal of Israel's strategic vulnerability, it was unsurpassed. That's the sort of thing Western audiences need to see if we're to have any hope of turning public opinion around. OK, rant over. As indeed it is Shire Network News for this week. Join us again next week when our special guest will be well-known Christian conservative blogger LaShawn Barber. When she realises I'm a Jewish convert, will she try to convert me back to Christianity? Tune in to Shire Network News next week and we'll find out. Until then, may your God go with you.